Today we reach the conclusion of the confrontation between Jesus and the Jewish leadership over his healing of an invalid man who had been 38 years at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem on the Sabbath. He healed him on the Sabbath. Jesus didn't conform to the man-made additions to the fourth commandment. And when the Jews took exception to his violation of their Sabbath day rules, Jesus went further yet, claiming his work was in fact the Father's work, making himself equal with God. So John 5, where we are this morning, provides for us a Christology that Jesus himself delivered regarding his identity and mission. He claimed authority to raise the dead spiritually and physically. He declared that God the Father had made him, Jesus, to be judge of the entire world. And he proved the truth of his claims by pointing to the witness of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, the witness of his miraculous works, and the witness of the Scriptures themselves all bearing testimony to Jesus' deity and power. His opponents still could not receive what he was teaching about himself. They were examples of what John the Apostle had mentioned earlier in John 1. He came to his own things, and his own people did not receive him. So what is the problem here? Why don't these religious leaders, many of them are scholars, they're Bible scholars, their religion is their thing, and biblical religion is evidently their thing, why, why won't they admit the truth of Jesus' testimony? Why won't they put their faith in Him as the long-promised Messiah? What is standing in the way? It's an important question because it gives us insight into why people today reject Jesus despite all the evidence to His identity and His power. In our text this morning, Jesus identifies the problem. It is deep. It's at the heart level. So follow with me as I read in John 5, 41 to 47. I do not receive glory from people but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Haunting question from Jesus. How can you believe? Verse 44. What stands in the way of people like these men putting faith in Jesus as the Messiah and Savior? You remember right before this, verse, this passage in verse 40, Jesus said, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. There, there's an act of will here resisting what the Scriptures say. Why aren't these men willing to come in faith to Christ? We're going to look at three areas 
that were out of focus. First was your love. Your love will determine whether you believe or not, whether you're in love with God or self. Second issue is your desire. Are you seeking glory from God or from man? And third, where you've set your hope. Is your hope set in tradition or in scriptural truth? Your love, your desire, your hope, all very tightly connected, all issues of the heart. The heart of unbelief is found here. First, consider with me that Jesus addresses their misplaced love. Your love, God or self, but I know, verse 42, to you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. They clearly do not love God, else they would love Jesus. Why is that? Because everything that Jesus says and everything that Jesus does is perfectly in line with the Father. You can tell who loves God. They, they, love, they love people where God is evidenced. It's become very fashionable nowadays to uh, rail on those that are gospel believers and talk about their flaws and, uh, and all of that as if that's something new, that human beings have flaws. But the problem is not that, that people hate Christians per se, is that they hate the God of Christians. They don't have the love of God in them, because if they love God, they would love the characteristics that they see in people that have been changed by God. And with Christ, you have a person who is perfectly in line with who God is and what He does. In Matthew 15, 7 through 9, after Jesus has done miracles, and they're worried about whether the disciples washed hands, He says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when He said, this people honors Me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They reject Jesus, but they'll be glad to receive someone who gets in line with their system. Jesus wouldn't do it. Now, some count as many as 64 persons after Jesus that claimed to be the Messiah. One of the most famous was called Simon Bar Kokhba, who came on the scene about 60 years later. Even esteemed rabbis of the time, like Rabbi Akiba, were convinced Bar Kokhba was the Messiah. Well, Rome ended up crushing the Bar Kokhba revolt, dashing their hopes to the ground. Jesus predicted in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25 that there would be many such false messiahs culminating in the Antichrist himself. Human beings, religious and irreligious, long for a leader to idolize. But in this case, it's anyone but Jesus. Sometimes this takes the form of formal religion. The Koran admits that Jesus did miracles and that Jesus did not sin, and yet holds that Muhammad, who, according to the Koran, did no miracles and did sin and died, is somehow greater than Jesus. It doesn't make sense. In general, people clamor to follow someone they admire. But Jesus, as the Bible reveals Him, is a problem for them. He's too demanding. He's too disruptive. 
He calls for repentance and faith. He humbles our pride. He declares himself Savior, which means you can't save yourself, and judge, which means your view of yourself doesn't hold water compared to his. If you still want to be in charge of your life, or if you're mainly interested in protecting and empowering your own denomination or religion rather than loving God supremely, then you don't want Jesus. He won't let you keep practicing that kind of religion. It's that simple. He won't let you build your life on yourself. He will call you to bow the knee and trust Him to save you and shepherd you. John 3.19, this is the judgment. This is the crisis. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Luke 11.42, Jesus pronounces, Woe to the Pharisees, for you tithe, mint, and rue, and every herb, small things, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. If you want to know what false religion looks like, sometimes it carries a Bible and sometimes it doesn't, but it's all hung up on the small things. And it doesn't focus on Jesus. And it doesn't love God. It's all about the system. It's all about the fathers. It's all about getting in line. And Jesus blows that kind of religion out of the water. That's why they hated him. That was at their heart of unbelief. They didn't really love God. They loved themselves and the system that they had. So on whom or what have you set your chief love? And what evidence can others see of that love in your life? Whatever you love, it's going to show up in your life. How are you using your time and your money? Where's your energy going to? What do you trust? What do you fear most to lose? Whatever that is, that's what you really love. That's your real God. And what or whom are you looking to for deliverance and satisfaction? What do you think is going to actually set you free? What do you think is going to enable you to find meaning in life? Is it God or is it self? Second, your desire, very closely related. Are you seeking glory from God or from man? I do not receive glory from people, Jesus said in verse 41. And then he returns to that theme in verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Now, in verse 41, Jesus is clarifying that his pushback against the Pharisees' rejection of him is not because he feels insulted that they aren't glorifying him, that he's not getting accolades from them. That's not his purpose. That's not his goal. If they, th if they think that's what he's trying to do, what they're doing is projecting onto him their own motives for their religious practices. See, they're part of a proverbial good old boy club bolstering one another's egos and seeking glory from the praise of human beings. This is the true desire of their hearts. This is what they seek. This is their goal. And as long as it is, they cannot 
according to Jesus, put their trust in Jesus as their Messiah and Savior. Their self-centered pride is exactly opposite from the God-centered humility and repentance required for anyone who's going to be forgiven and born again and welcomed by God through Christ and His perfect merits. As long as you're in it for yourself and the approval and praise of others, your heart is seeking what takes you away from faith in Jesus. You can't seek both. You have to decide. The world is full of those clamoring for awards and honorary degrees, recognition and affirmation. Some of it's secular, some of it's religious, but all of it is worthless when it comes to being right with God. So what is it that you really want? If you want God and His approval, you can have it, but only through Christ. And if you are in it for yourself, if you live life to be well thought of by other human beings, and that matters most to you, you'll likely get their praise, but you will forego God's. What's most important to you? You know, over the years, as we've seen those who defect from the faith, this has proven to be key. One of the common elements is this, this self-centered indulgence, desire to live a lifestyle that's contrary to Scripture. There's that, but there's also this, this hankering, this desire, this, this need for acceptance from those who reject Jesus. The need to be thought philosophically astute, the need to be considered educated and intellectual, the need to, to be looked at as somebody who's important and significant, to be affirmed by others who don't care about God. If you need that, if that's what you live for, you can't be saved. You have to want more than that. Every one of the human beings that you're so worried about, every one of the institutions, they're all going to fade away a hundred years from now. Nobody will know their name. You need God. You need His approval. You need His glory. And you can have that through Jesus. But you've got to want it. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, we all with unveiled face, he's talked about the Jews being blinded, a veil over their eyes where they couldn't come to Jesus, says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed to the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes to the Lord who is the Spirit. If you want to change, if you want to find the salvation that God brings, then you're going to find it in Jesus. For what we proclaim, he says, is not ourselves. It always makes me really nervous when anybody that purports to be a messenger for God or a church that's supposed to be promoting God, they're always talking about themselves. You know, the first person pronoun is like number one. It's like, you know, worship is a bunch of chest beating and not woe is me chest beating but great is me chest beating. 
what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts. There's something He did to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, that had impact on Paul's ministry and on the apostles' ministry and how they did business in 2 Corinthians 4.2. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. You see, dishonest tactics, what you're looking at is not godliness. And what you're looking at is not Christianity. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. We're not going to hitch God's Word to our wagon and make God's Word say whatever we want it to say. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. It is a fearful thing to say that you're giving the truth of God, knowing that the God of truth will hold you accountable for what you say. And and nothing man can do to you can make up for what God will do to you. If you hijack his word for your own ends, it's blasphemy and often done right from the pulpit. According to John 12, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, many people were drawn to Jesus. But the chief priests determined they were going to have to kill Lazarus as well as Jesus. I'm not sure how that was supposed to work. I mean, just raise Lazarus from the dead. All these people were believing, so we're going to kill Lazarus. It's like, wait, wait a minute. Jesus raises people from the dead, and you're going to kill a guy. That doesn't seem smart, but they were desperate. And the Pharisees were beside themselves because Jesus was gaining a following and undermining their influence. John 12, 19, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. See, what they're worried about is the popularity. What they're worried about is the standing. What they're worried about is glory from from human beings. They're not worried about what's right or what's wrong before God. They're worried about their position. They're worried about their influence. It's all about receiving glory from men rather than from God. It is the religion of hell. So what evidence can you give for whether you care about what God knows you to be versus what other people think you are? And what are you doing for God versus what you're doing to look good in the sight of others? I mean, that's something we have to ask ourselves all the time. You know, am I, why am I alive? Why do I do what I do? Why do I read my Bible? Why do I preach? Why, why do I go to life group? Why am I even here this morning? What, why do, what, what is my motive? What am I seeking? Am I seeking God and His approval through Jesus? Or am I seeking some kind of affirmation just from human beings? And then finally, your hope, also closely related and I put it this way, tradition or scriptural truth, and, and we'll see why as we work through this. Verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, 
If you know anything about the Pharisees and you know anything about the Jewish leadership, you're going, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Like, like these guys are like, Moses is their guy. They're, they're carrying on what Moses did. How can you say they don't believe his writings? In fact, in John 9, remember when, the, we're going to see it later, but when the man born blind is, is healed by Jesus, the Pharisees reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. So how is it that they have set their hope on Moses and would even call themselves disciples of Moses and yet do not believe the writings of Moses? you realize it's possible to follow in the tradition of a great leader of the past, even one God has used to write inspired Scripture, and yet not really believe what he actually wrote? Many practice a secondhand religion that trades on the high standing of the saints of the past, but does not adhere to what they taught and believed. And we know this happens. I mean, you can play the classroom game, whispering someone in, you know, a message in the child's ear. By the time it gets to the end of the line, it's suddenly radically different. Well, that's the way a lot of religion is. So they said they were following Moses. They said they were disciples of Moses. Their hope was set in Moses, but they didn't pay attention to Moses. Paul talks about these disciples of Moses in 1 Timothy 1, 5 through 8. The aim of our charge is to love is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully purpose of the law. What was it? What was the message of the law? Well, the Pharisees and others hijacked the Scriptures Moses wrote to develop a system of works righteousness that emphasized external rules, but left the heart untouched. It obsessed over speculations and extrapolations from the law, but ignored weightier matters like the love of God and justice. They missed the point of what Moses' writings teach, that we are a human race created in God's image but fallen from fellowship with God because of our sin, that God has promised a Redeemer who will deliver us from the curse. You realize creation, fall, redemption, Moses presents that right from the beginning. The whole rest of the Bible is about that, but Moses presents it. They were blind to the overarching message of the Mosaic system that underscored our desperate need for an unblemished substitute, a mediator, a perfect mediator, who would make blood atonement for humanity's colossal failure to keep the law. And instead, they prided themselves in their accomplishments. Instead, they pounded their chests that they were keepers of the law especially their separateness from those who can, they consider to be inferior 
to themselves before God. Never mind that God had promised through Moses that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's offspring, and that the perfect righteousness God puts on our account comes not from our perfect performance of the law, but from our faith in God's promise. Nobody but Jesus ever fulfilled the law, including themselves, and they knew it. So how did they think God was going to accept them if they were listening to Moses? They were blind leaders of the blind, washing the outside of the cup and leaving the inside filthy. They were like whitewashed tombs full of rotting corpses. They, they decorated the graves of the prophets while continuing their resistance to the prophetic message. They were all about power and wealth and influence. They foreclosed on widows' houses in their greed. They boiled in rage when an invalid of 38 years was healed because he was healed on the Sabbath day. They pretended to speak for God, but when God showed up in human flesh, they hated him enough to murder him because he disrupted their neat little system that made them important and wealthy. If you think such religious practitioners have died out, you're not paying attention. The religious charade is responsible for nearly all the damage that religion has done to people over history. Many have turned away from what they thought was Christianity, when in reality, what they could not stomach was this fraudulent version of it. Such fake religion ought to make you sick. It is blasphemous to the core. It makes merchandise out of God. So don't confuse it with Christ and Christianity. If you want to find the truth, go back to what the Scriptures actually say. See what Moses actually taught. Don't rely on knockoff versions of the truth. Don't base your hope on traditions regarding Scripture. Don't base your hope on feeling superior to those you see as hypocrites. It's appropriate to value what godly people have taught us over the years, but we can't root our faith in what they said about the truth. Look at what the Scriptures actually say. That's what's reliable. You and I are accountable for what we do with whatever traditions and trends swirl around us, vying to seal our loyalty. We are accountable for looking at our own Bibles and seeing what God has said. In Luke 16, we see this accountability in a very graphic way. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man's in hell, and he says, I beg you, Father, to send him, that is Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. 
By the way, someone rose from the dead and proved Jesus' prediction true. Jesus himself. Moses becomes a witness for the prosecution of these men who invoked his name but ignored his writings. He, along with the other 40-plus authors of the Scriptures, writing over some 1,500 years from multiple continents with one great theme of redemption through the promised Messiah, Jesus, will stand together in solidarity to condemn those who blew off the Scriptures for their own version of reality, religious or otherwise. What a treasure we have in the written words of God. There is no substitute. They have the power to make us wise into salvation. 2 Timothy 3.15, how from a child you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able, they have the power to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, the Messiah Jesus. So how much of the religion you practice comes from actual Scripture versus just the culture you're used to? And where have you placed your hope of salvation, in your performance or in Christ? And if you don't believe what the Scriptures say, what are you trusting more? Most of us here see ourselves as believers trusting in Christ Jesus to save us. Don't let loose of your reasons for doing so. Guard your heart. Guard your love for God. Guard your desire for His affirmation rather than the world's. Guard your attention to the Scripture, because when the heart goes away, your faith will follow. Some here don't believe. You think you're doing the right thing. Just don't flatter yourself about the reason for your unbelief. It's essentially the same as these unbelieving Jewish opponents. It is not for lack of evidence. It is because your heart wants something different, something less than God. You don't love Him. You don't desire His praise. You are in it for yourself and the high opinion of human beings you esteem more than God. But the Scriptures will testify against you in the day of judgment because God has given you all the revelation you need. You just don't want to give up your imagined control of your life and your desire for self-centered goals. In the final day, you will realize you've played the fool and you've traded what was eternal or what's passing like a shadow. This is the heart of unbelief. Love of self instead of God. Desire for glory from men instead of glory from God. And your hope set on tradition instead of scriptural truth. May God deliver us from this kind of heart of unbelief and give us heart that trusts completely in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word and, Lord, the directness of it and the timeliness of it. Thank You for the Lord Jesus and how plainly He spoke on these matters. May our own hearts take in what He has taught us. May we draw close to You. May we guard our hearts from idols. And, Lord, may we enjoy the rest 
and the peace and the life and the honor that comes from God alone.